All right, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another fantastic episode of Keeping It Real Estate with your hosts, Colin Schwartz and Chris Palmerloo. And the crowd goes wild. <sighs> I'm going to try to have a deeper voice for today's uh, podcast. I was told by my co-host here that I have a nasally high-pitched voice. So. Uh, you said it, and I agree. No, I never said that. Anyway, hey. I, I think we were recording for the part that you said that, so we can go back. <laughs> um, no, your voice isn't too nasally. Not not today, at least. Um, On the podcast today is Neil Peter Patrick Harris. <laughs> Peter, Neil, um, welcome, man. We uh, we just got to get to know each other just real briefly. Um Real estate investor, been doing this for nine years. Um, I'm going to let you give your give our listeners your bio. So, welcome to the show, man. Yeah, well, uh, Chris and Colin, it's uh, great to be here. And uh, God, we just kicked it off. I'm already having a fun time with you guys. So, uh, it's awesome. So, I'll give you a little background, and we'll take it from there. But um, I started my real estate investing journey a little bit. It was actually like November around nine years ago, a little bit over nine years now. And uh, it was kind of a weird way to get into real estate. I started raising capital for distressed mortgages. So a lot of people will kind of the wholesale, the flip, they'll do some buy and holds. Yeah, maybe they'll get into the multifamily or whatever. And then yeah, they get into private lending and notes and that kind of thing. And um, notes was kind of my my first uh, foray into uh, real estate investing. I, and I grew up, my father was a property manager for CBRE. And I always thought, I don't want anything to do with real estate. You know, I'd see him at you know, when it was snowed or a big storm or something, it'd be two o'clock in the morning and I'd hear him up on the phone doing what he did. So I just thought, man, I don't, I don't know if I want to do that. Uh, and then I started working for this distressed mortgage company. The, uh, the CEO of that company had a, uh, pretty extensive single family portfolio and did a lot of single family fix and flips and things like that. So he kind of brought me under his wing and taught me the, not just the note side of the business, but also the, um, the, this, real estate investing in general and raising capital and that kind of stuff. So did that for about four years, met a lot of people, uh, learned a lot and uh, started GSPREI um, back in about 20 in 2019. And uh, we focus on redeveloping, revitalizing primarily single family uh, workforce, affordable housing. We're located in uh, Philadelphia. So we do a lot in the city of Philadelphia. We do a lot in Baltimore as well. Um, we do everything in house. So the construction, the property management, all that kind of stuff. So we we like to be in areas that we can control the whole deal and uh, have our boots on the ground there and, you know, control the time frame and the budget, all that kind of stuff. So kind of a 30,000 foot overview. What were you doing beforehand? What were you doing before you started? I was in college. And so before I started with the distressed mortgage company, I was, I went to Temple University. I majored in uh, media business and entrepreneurship. It was like in the communication school. I thought I was going to work in television or radio or something like that. And I got out and was just kind of looking for a job and just took, it was a job in marketing and, uh, I, I, I took it and it was really close to my parents' house. So like I could walk to work. It was like perfect. And, um, that was the, the distressed mortgage company. They used to do a lot of like courses. They would sell courses for people, you know, how to like investors who wanted to, um, kind of, do workout agreements and second mortgages. I don't even know if people do that anymore. There's all like the rules and regs have evolved so much over the years. You got to be really careful. I do know some like smaller funds that raise money and buy distressed second mortgages. Um, so when I started with them, they were doing a lot of seconds. They would teach courses and then we would raise money through the funds. And um, during my time there, they we were raising a lot of money and, and they transitioned from seconds to first mortgages. And the thing with first mortgages was first is is much more hands on than second. Seconds is like debt collection. Seconds you have like um, it was like teachers and people like that who would like you know they were good like communicators and and they would call the homeowner and try to get a, what they call like a workout agreement, essentially a payment plan that would work for them and work for the company. And uh, over time, when they were transitioning into, sec- into from seconds to first 
first. First is much more of a, a hard asset management, you know, real property. Uh, not that you can't get workout agreements. It's just probably not as common. And a lot of like what some of the opportunity that they were that they were taking advantage of was like Heckam loans, reverse mortgages. So a lot of times there, there was no homeowner in the property. It was a um, the, the borrower was deceased. Uh, so then you have a physical property and you're buying it in the new position, but your exit probably is going to be taking it through foreclosure. Now you have this physical property and you either got to sell it as kind of like an REO uh, or you can add value to it and, um, you know, put work into it and kind of fix and flip it. Or if it's, if it makes sense, you could even hold it as a rental, that kind of thing. So there's a number of different exits, but a lot of them are a little bit more physical than a workout on a second. All right, Peter. So you spent some time in the distress note business um, and you were an employee there, correct? Yes. Okay. Um, tell me a little bit about your role in that business and kind of what you focused on. Yeah, it's uh, it transitioned over the years. So when I came on, it was like marketing support and the uh, the company had courses. So we were selling courses and talking to students and doing all that kind of stuff. And uh, the CEO had he did a lot of marketing stuff. You guys, I, I don't know how big you are. You guys are on bigger pockets, but uh, I've been on Dave, episode 318. Oh, there you go. So uh, I, you might know Dave Van Horn. He had uh, articles, PPR. So that, that's who I work for. And um so I, I kind of started off with like just doing the student stuff and uh, you know, they also sold notes too. So people could go on the website and they had a platform for investors to buy individual uh, second mortgages and small pools and things like that. So I did a lot of that. And um, it was one of the things like I kind of realized a lot of people were calling that wanted to talk about the funds, but there was nobody to really talk to them. Like Dave was busy or he would be, you know, doing whatever he was doing, kind of running the business. And so I started to, usually what I would do is like schedule a call and, um, with Dave. And then I would sit in on those calls and very quickly, I just kind of took over the investor relations department. And, you know, the, my goal was kind of to make, to get people to invest without having to speak to Dave. And, uh, so did that for a while and we kind of grew it. We had probably four or so people like, you know, also on the phone and, uh, helping with, um, you know, the paperwork and the administrative stuff that went along with it. So, um, that was kind of, that was my main role at the end of the day was investor relations and raising capital for the funds. Can you, so walk the listener through the note process and kind of why it's a good investment? Because to me, there's so many different ways. Well, at least, I mean, you're going to be able to explain more, but there are different ways you can make money from the notes. You can just repurpose them. You can, you can actually take, take the asset and you can actually do something with the assets. So, so walk, walk us through the business approach to these notes at that job. As well as the, yeah. ri as well as the risk as well. Um, I've never heard of, you know, buying second position notes. I obviously I knew that was a thing, but curious to like kind of, the risk yeah, yeah. Well, and I'll, and I'll say at this stage of the game, it's been a, it's been a minute since I've thought about those kinds of questions. And those days I was answering those questions every day. Um, but nowadays my, obviously the questions I answer and the conversations I have have, have evolved and they're, they're a little different, but I can, I can answer it in the sense that, cause we have a note side of our business actually. So myself and my partner, Ron, run the, the hard asset side of our business, the rental side of our business. But my other partner, Wade, runs the note side of our business. So we also buy distressed mortgages, um, primarily first position mortgages. So that I could probably speak to that a little bit better. Uh, like with first position mortgages, it's kind of uh, it's kind of like, you can call it like pre REO. You know what I mean? So it's like you're buying the property, but you're buying it in the note position. Uh, and now if it is occupied, you can try to get a workout agreement with the bar borrower. And that's certainly possible. And I think Wade has a, a performing portfolio right now. Uh, a lot of times, like it's, it's not as common because like with second mortgages, um, ch chances are if they're paying their first, you know, they want to, they want to get something to work out. They don't want you to start foreclosure from second position with first, if they're not paying their, their first, they, they could be in a hard time and maybe not be able to make payments or something like that. So it's going to depend. But, you know, first and foremost, you always want to try to keep the borrower in the property, uh, get a workout agreement, get a payment plan that works for both parties. Uh, the, if that's not a possibility for whatever reason, it's just not going to work. They can't afford it. Uh, or you can, you know, the, or the borrower is deceased and, and there's just nobody there to, to pay it. You know, so you got to work through the property. Um, so you're either going to, there's kind of two things. And now that I'm talking about it, it's all flow 
flowing back to me. Um, there's two things. You can exit through the borrower or you can exit through the property. Um, so if, if the borrower is deceased or they can't, you know, payment plan is not going to make sense, then exiting through the property, there's a couple different ways to do that. You know, and so you can, you could foreclose, uh, you could take the property back and then you can just sell it as is position on the market. Uh, or you can, you know, add some value to it in some way, shape or form. So like for us, we will physically touch about 90% of the notes we buy. Uh, so we have contractors going in there, you know, it's typically real light rehab, uh, paint, carpet, um, stuff like that. I mean, nothing too crazy, uh, but there are areas that we've worked in more so and have you know greater relationships with contractors where we will go in and do a full renovation. So at that point, you're essentially doing what we do on the hard asset side of the business. You're not going to probably keep it as a rental um, unless you can maybe get some scale in a certain area. But you know, a lot of times you're, you're just, you're fixing, flipping the property, just like you would any other time. You just maybe bought it at a little bit of a cheaper price point, buying it in the loan position. And then obviously you got to factor in your, your holding costs and, and your legal fees and things like that to work through foreclosure. But ideally you should be getting it a little bit cheaper than you would uh, say an REO or like an on or off market deal, that kind of thing. So uh, you, you're in communication with the lender and you're trying to work out something with them to buy it. Are you usually buying the note at its face value or are you getting a discount on the note as well? Uh, so there, there would be a, you know, the, yeah, there would definitely be a, a discount on the note. You know what I mean? So it's a non, it's a delinquent note. Uh, now that also is going to factor into the price point. You know, how delinquent is it? Is it 90 days delinquent? Is it 180 days delinquent? Is it beyond that? Um, so those kinds of things could factor in, but for what we do, a lot of times it's based off of, you know, like what's the BPO price or what do we think the, the property value is? And it's going to trade, you know, somewhere you know, at, at a discount to that. So I think it's usually around, uh, you know, give or take around like 70 cents on the dollar you're going to pay. So if it's, if, if the notes for a hundred thousand dollars, like as a first position mortgage on a property for a hundred thousand dollars, you might buy it for $70,000. Yeah. So let's, let's use real numbers. Let's use, yeah, real numbers. So there's a $200,000 property. Uh, the loan on it's 160, let's say, because the buyer put down 40,000. So but the bank only has 160 out. You're coming in there, you're getting it for 130. So now you have a $130,000 asset that you maybe only have to do a 10, 15, $20,000 facelift to. Now you're in at 150, you flip it, you make 50K. Yeah, that's kind of like a perfect world. Obviously, factor in like I said, like your holding cost, you know, because getting to the foreclosure period, depending on if you're in a judicial or a non-judicial state, may take shorter or longer. I mean, you could be in like a state like New York; it could be two years or, or more before you can get the, the to the property. Uh, whereas you could be in a state like Texas or you know, or another like a non-judicial state where it doesn't have to go through the courthouse, and you might be able to get that property a little bit quicker. Are you doing this nationwide? Uh, so Wade, yeah, we're in about 40, 40 different states on that side. Yeah. So if you can imagine, like he's, he's got guys who are calling, uh, contractors, local contractors. Now he has a whole, um, process to it. So typically what he's going to do is he's going to deal with, uh, like real estate agents or like third party asset managers. And he's going to get referrals for contractors. And then he's going to go out and get a number of bids, probably anywhere between three or five to get an idea for who's got, who's got the best price, you know, who's going to be able to actually get this done and who's not going to be a pain in the butt to deal with. Um, so he's got like, that's, that's his whole thing is, is, you know, kind of finding the best contractor and then, um, you know, just managing it from afar from there. What's your volume on the note side? So, they're usually like, so we do a lot through HUD. So like HUD, HUD does quarterly trades and, uh, they're, and there's opportunities on the, the HECM side. So like reverse mortgages and on the forward side as well. So non-reverse, like more like a traditional mortgage. And, uh, those trades are going to be, I think anywhere up to like 150 to $180 million. Uh, and so that could be maybe 1500 or so notes. Uh, like, so actually it's the sixth. He, so you're he buying just, 1500 notes? Uh, no, we won't win all those. No, yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll, we will probably win. I think the last one, like, so we, he just put a bid in yesterday. Heckam, uh, HUD had a Heckam trade that was, uh, due yesterday on the fifth. And, uh, I, I haven't heard anything from him about that yet. We actually have a meeting about it tomorrow. And um, 
but last quarter, I think he won about $30 million worth. Um, so that, that's a separate part of our business. So like what, what we do on the rental side of our business and the hard asset side of our business, we raise capital through accredited investors through like 506 C funds and all on the note side of our business. We raise, uh, the capital is all raised through an institutional partner. So for us, it just made a lot of sense. When, when we originally started GSP, we thought we're going to have our, our rental fund, like our hard asset real property fund. And then we're going to have our note fund. And the problem is like, we couldn't raise enough money to be competitive in that space. And then the other thing is like quick enough to do it. The other thing too, is like, we'll bid that entire $180 million tape, but we might only win 25, 30, 40 million of it. Uh, So it's like, how, if, what do you, you know, with the institutional partner, they'll commit uh, up to 180 million, 200 million, and then we'll only use what we have to, what we, what we end up buying. You know what I mean? So we're not paying on it or anything like that. Like, so it's, it's a little, the, the institutional relationship makes more sense for those kinds of trades. Uh, and what we do on the note side of the business, whereas like when we buy you know, rental property, we can never raise enough capital to take down all the deals we see on the first, uh, like on the single family uh, side of our business. So uh, I'm geeking out on this. So, <laughs> that uh 30 let's say you get 30 million right is that is it is the entire amount of 30 million is that funded by the capital source the agency yeah the 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 capital partner will fund the whole entire thing yeah. okay so you buy you buy the notes all cash in 100 yes. and then you flip the homes are you sharing some is there some type of profit sharing with that agency yeah. that yeah. okay oh yeah right. yeah yeah they get a preferred return uh it is accruing that's another like nice aspect of it whereas like when we raise money through our funds we from accredited investors we start paying the day money hits our account i know not everybody does that some people certainly do capital calls and some people do you know kind of stabilization periods and things like that but for us when money hits the account we start paying um so for that it's it for for the way it works with the capital partner on that side of the business, uh, it it's twelve percent, I believe, and it accrues, and then everything. There's a split. I don't even remember. Wade would know better than I, like what the split is between himself and and the capital partner. But yeah, and those deals are exited quickly. I mean, like they're, I think usually around like an eighteen month turnaround, and and they've worked through everything, and and you know, they've worked through worked through all the thirty billion in the eighteen months. How many projects is that? I mean, is that that's a two hundred, three hundred? Probably. Let me see. And is that four times a year? Uh, yeah, ideally, but yeah, probably upwards. Like I'm thinking, average property value is going to be probably two hundred, a buck fifty to two hundred or so. I mean, give or take. There could certainly be much higher value dollar stuff in like California or something like that. But there could also be low value stuff in Mississippi or something. You know what I mean? Like this is, is going to vary. Uh, and same thing too. Like maybe the whole thing won't be exited in 18 months. Like some product might not be, but that's going to be all part of like what they bid. You know, he's going to know, you know, these things will exit sooner or later. And you know, he has an idea too of what, what he can exit kind of the synergies between like what we do on the note side and the rental side is, is I, in the long term, we would like it to be where we can buy these notes instead of having to flip them, hold them as rentals. Um, but it's just, it's not always going to make sense. The other thing too, is we can be more competitive on the bidding side. If we're real, if we're going to realize our return over time as a rental, instead of having to make a certain return in a, fl- in a fix and flip, if that makes sense. So th- there's that one section where you're buying these notes through. Is that a single capital partner you usually t- you typically use? Yeah, right now uh, it's called LL Funds. They're out of Philadelphia. You know, they're funding everything. You know what I mean? And, and yeah. So there's that portion. And then tell us about your 506C portion. What, what does that business do or what does that portion do? Yeah. So what we do on that side of the business is, is uh, we, those funds raise capital from accredited investors. The capital is used to acquire and redevelop primarily single family properties. Uh, and what we focus on is typically going to be under $250,000 in value. Uh, so it's usually what we call like workforce affordable housing, you know, two to four bedroom. Uh, and what we buy is typically fully distressed. So we buy blighted homes. Uh, you know, we don't want to compete 
compete with homeowners and regular mom and pop type home buyers and all. You know, we want properties. Our model is, is we want to be all in for around one hundred and twenty thousand dollars. Whether that's a property we buy for twenty and put a hundred into it, or a property we buy for a hundred and put twenty into it, it's just the property you buy for twenty and put a hundred into it. You're practically handing over new construction to the tenant, so it's going to be a lot less maintenance and repairs and and <clears throat> surprises and things like that. I think a lot of people get burnt on value add single families and probably multifamily too, is when they estimate it's going to be twenty thousand dollars in renovation, but then when they start doing stuff, they find out you know open up a wall or whatever it is and it's like oh this the renovation is actually going to cost double or it's going to cost you know even 30,000 or something like that so we, we and we do all the construction and property management in house so we really prefer those fully distressed properties we can buy them for you know north uh, I'm sorry south of like 30,000 put between 70 to 100,000 or so into them right now we're seeing appraisals come back uh, on the low end of about 165 ideally closer to 185,000 and uh uh, rents are going to be somewhere between fifteen fifty to sixteen fifty, or I- ideally even a little bit more. And uh, we essentially just do like big bursts. So we, we'll do a. a, a, a portfolio refinance. Uh, so we'll typically get all of our money, if not even a little bit more than what we've invested into those properties out. We'll refi it uh, typically at a 30 year fixed rate uh, mortgage. And then we'll just continue to recycle and, and grow the portfolio that way. So for our funds, like in, investors have different options. Like we have a fixed rate, fixed term fund. And coming from PPR, that was kind of, that was what I was used to. That was how they had their fund structured. Um, so we did that and we continue to do that today. And then we have more of a, uh, more of like a traditional profit equity sharing fund where we pay a preferred return and then we split the profit and equity above that. Uh, investors receive tax advantage, that kind of thing. But primarily what we focus on there is just distressed workforce, affordable single family houses. How are you finding those homes? So a lot of what we do, like Baltimore is kind of different in Philadelphia in the sense that a lot of what we do, it comes off auction sites. So there's a few auction sites in the city where a lot of product kind of finds its way to like, we'll, we'll occasionally work with wholesalers, you know, real, real estate professionals, that kind of thing, uh, brokers and all. But a lot of times it's just in Baltimore, it just seems like a lot of this product ends up on these auction sites. So we have great relationships with them uh, and we buy a lot of product from there. We do some direct to seller stuff. You know what I mean? So if we, we want to have certain, we, we're kind of certain areas that we like more than others. Uh, so if we, we want a concentration, you know, single family, similar and multifamily too, in the sense that, you know, and we're, we're not afraid of scatter site. We like that, you know, we like being in different States and different streets, all that kind of stuff. But we definitely like to have a certain concentration in a certain areas that we like, and we feel are kind of prime for growth and lower crime areas. Uh, you know, the kind of different value generators where there's just strong, makes strong demand in that particular area. Uh, so we'll do some direct marketing type stuff. A lot of that kind of stuff is more like phone calls, you know, finding the, uh, the homeowner's contact information, giving a call, see if we can make a deal, that kind of thing. Um, occasionally we'll get product through HUD and other government service entities, but that kind of ebbs and flows. So sometimes there's a lot of product through there. Sometimes there's not. Um, so that it's kind of a mixture of, of a few different things right now. But the, the one of the things in Baltimore is there's just a, a ton of, uh, blighted properties, you know, so there's a lot of opportunity to go in and revitalize and there's a strong uh, rental market a lot of demand for rentals and there's a strong retail market too i think that's one of the things where when you invest in affordable workforce areas you definitely you want to see a strong retail market you want to see regular home buyers buying homes in those areas you don't want to just be dealing with investors you know what i mean where you're where you're going to sell and, and that's like kind of go back to one of the questions you asked before i think that's one of the biggest differences between notes and 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 the rental properties if if shit hits the fan with notes you have to sell to other investors there's no like retail market for that you know what i mean so they smell blood in the water you know they they want to deal whereas on the rental side of the business you have your sell you can sell, you, know, you have on single family you have a lot of options you know i mean you can rent it you can or you could sell it uh, and you, and then there's like 250 and below values. You're in the first time uh, home buyer market. You know what I mean, so it's a very competitive market, whether we're up or we're down or we're in recession or not. Uh, first time home buyer market tends to stay strong throughout recession and downturns and things like that as well. 
how many rentals do you have in your portfolio now? Right now we have, uh, I think 92 doors. So, and, and over the years we've done a lot of fix and flips. Like we, we used to, we started as like a fix and flip, you know, so we did a lot and that kind of came out of the product we were finding in South Jersey where it's just, the taxes were really high and it didn't make sense to hold. Uh, and we were getting a lot of that through government service entities. And then that product kind of slowed down and we were starting in the Jersey markets and we we're starting to see more stuff in Philadelphia and that stuff in Philadelphia, the taxes made a little bit more sense. So we started to hold more and that's when we really started to get used to uh, the Section 8 rentals and, and just the process of Section 8 and all that kind of stuff. And as we got more comfortable with that process and, and Philly has gotten, it's harder and harder to find deals in Philly. I think a lot of New York money has come down to Philly and saw the kind of margins you could make and dro drove prices up. Um, so a few, about five years ago, we got into the Baltimore market and started researching and uh, we were, my partner Ron went to school in Maryland. So he was fortunate to have friends and, and people who had grown up in that area and stayed around that area who kind of introduced us to the market. They worked in construction. So they were like our initial boots on the ground as we learned the areas. Cause I, and I said this before, like when you're dealing in those like urban and metropolitan areas, it's, it's block to block and even like it's street to street. And, you know, it's not just like neighborhood. There's always those pockets you want to be in. So you really want to know, you know, where you're investing in and you kind of want to know the, the ins and outs of it. And it comes down to like just crime and value generators and, you know, employment and all that kind of stuff. Have you, have you jumped into any multifamily at all? So we own a couple small multis, uh, you know, so, uh, you know, a couple triplexes, duplexes, um, but nothing, nothing above that. You know, I mean, our focus, we, we, we really like the single family space for a number of different reasons. So it just hasn't been our focus um, in, in the past couple of years. And, you know, I, I, I'm not, I know a lot of people kind of do what they do and shit on what other people do. And I'm not like that. I mean, I think uh, a lot of our investors invest in multifamily and um, I think, I like where we're at. I think the supply and the demand metrics in the single space is, is really strong, uh, especially in the markets we're in. You know, there's a lot of people want to be in a two, four bedroom, single family home. Uh, and it's, it's becoming like a rare asset. You know what I mean? Like we're not making more. But yeah, I, I just I saw some stats. I use this in like some of the presentations I do. It's um, under four percent of new construction was sold under $200,000. So it's like when it comes to like those starter homes, like first time home buyer market homes, like affordable workforce kind of market stuff, like we're just not creating new new ones. But there is a lot of blighted properties and things like that out there where you can revitalize. And, uh, you know, typically the, the feedback is very positive with the neighborhood and, and the community in general, because when you're making their properties and their neighborhood better at the end of the day. So it's, um, our, our focus has been primarily single. Uh, and I think we're, we kind of have the blinders on in, in some sense too, where we, cause there is like economies of scale and things and, and efficiencies created with scale in a single family portfolio. I think that's probably one of the biggest things that investors miss with single is the larger it is, the easier it is to manage in some ways, cause you can make those key in-house hires. If you do that stuff in-house and two, you can, you can kind of get more leverage and more access to quality property management. If you do want to go the outsource route, the larger the portfolio is. Um, so there's a lot of efficiencies and benefits to having a larger single family portfolio. When you look at like institutions, like when they go into a market, they typically want to buy like at least 750 doors, if not ideally like 1500 plus immediately, because they need that that kind of scale, uh, probably to make their in-house hires and, and you know make their numbers make sense. And uh, when you're managing single family at scale, you really have to have the property management uh, down and you really have to create a good experience for the tenants or you're, you're going to have a problem because ideally like single family should have lower turnover than multifamily. And I mean, you have more families and people who are thinking long term and want to stay there. Uh, so you want to make sure you provide a great experience for those people. And, um, you know, doing it in house is a great way to do it. So but not everybody wants to do that. Right. Yeah. No, I mean, that, that's where I cut my teeth was in property management. So I, I didn't have a father that was in real estate. So I just decided to figure it out myself and uh, go spray for bed bugs myself and do my own evictions. And uh, I used to carry around a mobile printer printing off leases in between my lunch breaks. So yeah, but to, to your point, um, the best way to ever operate is to do it yourself to do it in house right now we're managing I think we're now 1500 units 
in-house or so, yeah. give or take. And uh, eventually we will be. The whole thing's about 2,600 yeah. count. Yeah, the whole thing. Yeah, we have about 2,600 units. And uh, yeah, eventually we'll be uh, even higher. I think we'll get up to probably 95, 100% at some point. You know, I think we'll always have some sort of outsourced and new markets. Um, but to your point, the, the, the level of service that you can provide doing your own property management, second to none. Um, we don't own any single families. Uh, Chris actually owns a few. I own one outside of my home. Um, but I have noticed a lot of, uh, positive trends and, you know, townhomes, et cetera. Um, especially now more than ever to your point that there's no houses that are for the first time home buyer anymore. They really don't exist. Otherwise you're getting into a typically a rougher area. So people aren't able to purchase anymore. So they are looking to, you know, find their own home, but are basically, you know, having to become kind of lifelong renters. Uh, I heard Grant Cardone put out something the other day and, you know, so it's got to be true. So it's got to be true. Love, love them or hate them. But, you know, there, there's certainly some logic behind it when uh, you start seeing these home prices go up and um, wages aren't going up that much of, you know, to, to make this work is, you know, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 year mortgages, you know, something like that. Ba basically becoming a renter forever. Um, it, it, you can call them the same thing. You can call it a mortgage or you can call it renting. It's basically you don't own it. You're just paying, you know, something at you know, a, a certain time frame. But yeah, I, I've always I've always been intrigued by single families. We got into multifamily. As I said, Chris spent what four years on yeah. four single family homes. Um, but the multifamily, the, the scalability is great because to your point, you can get a lot better attention from property managers or you can start hiring teams. So you're not the you're not the I'm a guy. You're not, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. And you're out there running every single thing. Um, but yeah, kind of what's, uh, what, what is your role in the business? And then kind of what, what do you foresee going forward and kind of your, your growth trajectory? This episode is brought to you by Raven. This is a company that we're affiliated with. So our business, 11 Wealth, is a part of this business. And we are so excited for this opportunity. Uh, what this is, is a real estate company that invests into value-add opportunities and in the process actually installs solar implementation into the buildings. And so we decarbonize the atmosphere. We also install low-flow uh, water conservation mechanisms. And we have a social aspect to it as well. Raven allows investors to get into real estate for as low as $250. We have plenty of investors who've invested a lot more than that, but the minimums on this are only $250. There's a 10% return on that money and it's backed by real estate. So I just really stress people to go to joinraven.com. That's uh, joinraven, R-A-Y-V-E-N.com. Take a look at the website. It's fantastic what we're doing, not only as investors, but obviously for the planet. Uh, joinraven.com, it's phenomenal. Yeah, well, that's a good question, especially like this time of year, end of the year. That's when you, when you start asking yourself those questions and kind of planning for 2024 and that kind of thing. So, uh, you know, my my main role in the business today is uh, investor relations and, and, you know, looking to grow relationships with investors, uh, provide the best experience to all of our existing investors and, and that kind of thing. So, you know, creating funds and, and offering that fit their needs and provide, you know, different benefits. So like when we started, we had just the income fund. We did the fixed rate and the fixed term. That's perfect for some people who want that predictability, uh, kind of a reliable payment on a monthly basis that they can, uh, you know, factor into their living expenses and their budget and all that kind of stuff. Um, but for years I had people asking me, how can I share in the upside or how can I get tax advantages and things like that. So that was kind of how our growth fund came to be was looking at it as, well, what if we did, what if we paid a little bit of a smaller preferred return, but then we let the investor share in the upside this way, they're getting a higher return. They're kind of being rewarded over time. They're sharing in, in the, the equity they're sharing in the profit, uh, but they're also sharing in all the tax advantages of ownership as well. So kind of, it's just listening to our investors, uh, listening to like the market and what's going on, you know, when it comes to different offerings and strategies and what do other people have to offer and how can we be as competitive as possible? So, you know, just trying to find, it's kind of goes in three buckets, like trying to provide the best return, the high, best, highest return that we can provide. Um, that's, that makes sense for our strategy and our model. And then, you know, a term that makes sense, you know, whether it's one year or three years or five years, or, you know, how can we make that work? Uh, how can we look at data to know what our retention rates are and things like that? And then, um, transparency, you know, how can we provide the absolute most amount of 
information about what it is that we're doing, what we're buying, what we're seeing in the market, what our performance is, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then another part of what I do is kind of like corporate strategy, you know, so just kind of running, you know, me and my partner, Ron, just running the business as a whole, you know, making decisions on on the what we're going to buy, where we're going to buy it, um, you know, what our budgets are, price points, all that kind of stuff. So just kind of like overall management of the day to day business and, you know, making sure things are going the way they're they're supposed to go and, and what we kind of scheduled and budget and planned when, when we got into a property originally. Um, and then kind of like future state. And I mean, we would, you know, we're kind of, um, I don't want to say, you know, oh, we want to own a thousand doors. And I mean, but that's because I just don't like to necessarily think that way. You know, for me, I want to be profitable at the end of the day. And I mean, that's the most important thing. I want to be profitable and I want the, uh, the experience for our ourselves, for our investors and for our tenants to be as good as possible. So I would like to get as large as we can possibly get and keep a really good experience because that's the one thing you see. Like I'd love to be, you know, the invitation homes and the American homes for rent and the Tricons and, you know, kind of or like a Vinebrook, like an institution that is focused on providing affordable and workforce housing, you know, revitalizing and redeveloping underserved communities communities, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and I'd like to get as big as we can get where we can continue to provide a really great personal experience to each one of our investors and, and all of our tenants. So that's kind of, that's the way I look at it. So I think it's often overlooked is the benefit that you provide your tenants. Um, and it sounds like lip service, but I mean, look, there's money to be made in real estate. You obviously know what you're talking about. And if you know what you're doing, just like any job, you can, you can find that profit margin and you can do it. But there's something that is, it's, it's, it's intangible, but it's, it really helps drive you is seeing what you're doing for these people and where they live. Um, you know, we're not, when we're purchasing multifamily, we're not necessarily purchasing blighted multifamily. Um, but to see a, a, see a complex change completely aesthetically from the exterior, have all the interior go from 1973 up to 2023, um, to have the common areas better lit, to have a better service to the tenants. I think it's often overlooked because everyone wants money or passive income or people watch Grant Cardone or whatever they're doing. And that's all awesome. But you're actually changing somebody's life. And, I, and you know, Colin uh, did a good job with the property management company we have. We're doing the COVID process. We were actually providing our tenants with uh, food vouchers and different places to d – different uh, ways to save money locally. I mean, those are things that have nothing to do with cash on cash return or, or passive income. And I think that's often overlooked. So that's awesome to hear you, to hear you say that because it can become – you can tell who's authentic and saying that they care about what's going on with their tenants and it's not just the investors. So that's great to hear you say that. Yeah. But I mean, also I think what's really overlooked is that's how you actually become more profitable and become a longer lasting company. I mean, so many people are, what, what do you say? Trip over, tripping over in dollars to pick up a penny or yeah. something like that all the time. And I think it's a, you know, it, it's an old landlord type of thinking of, well, this is how much cash I have. And, you know, I only spent this much in maintenance. And, you know, this is why I run it like this, because this is how how much I put in my pocket. And, you know, the building's falling apart and they're proud of it. And they're like, OK, you know, I built these new cabinets, you know, and it cost me four hundred dollars. And, you know, they're going to last 15 years, et cetera. Instead of looking at it and running it like a business and knowing that there's just not this single point of connectivity, it's, you know, you, you, you yourself are building a brand, whether you know it or not, you're building a brand and your brand will be contagious because of the service that you build. Are you building high end luxury Airbnb rentals? No, you are building workforce housing that's clean, affordable, and that's well put together and that's long lasting with good service. Like that, that's, you know, that that's the stamp of approval. Um, so yeah, kudos. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I love it. You know, it's kind of, it's just getting back to the basics at the end of the day. You know what I mean? Like you think about like, um, you know, like basketball or football or like from, from a sports perspective, it's like who can shoot. I, I was just at a Temple St. Joe's game uh, over the weekend. And like, we missed, I think we were at like 60% from the line. And it's like, like you just, you quit, we couldn't hit free throws. And I mean, it's just like, and, and we lost the game for a number of reasons, but it's just one of those things where I always think about that. Like just the, what are those basic, you know, things and, 
and, and communication and providing a good experience. And, you know, when people call, you know, picking up the phone and getting back to them, if you can't pick up the phone, like that's just one of those things I think a lot of people just kind of forget, you know what I mean? Or, or they, they get busy and it's just, like you said, you're building a brand, whether you like it or not. And, um, you know, you, it's, your reputation is going to make it is going to either be like a hindrance or it's going to make it easier for you. Uh, and that's on every side of the business. You know, it's capital acquisitions and execution. So it's like how you treat um, your investors and, and your, your loan, you know, partners and things like that, bankers and stuff like that, loan officers uh, on the acquisition side, you know, how, how are you to deal with, you know, with wholesalers or, um, you know, different, whatever, you know, people you work with from an acquisition standpoint, same thing. Like if if you're dealing with homeowners and all, you're respectful. Uh, and then the tenants, like it's, that to me is just the most important thing. You know what I mean? It's like, what fun is it? Um, or how can I, I couldn't really sleep at night if I'm making money, but I'm also treating people like shit or, you know, I'm not, you know, respecting them. And I've said yeah, that I so always, many times. <laughs> it yeah. always, it's like, you want to treat people the way you want to be treated. It, it's, it's so simple and we all know it, but it's harder than it sounds or something, I guess. So, <laughs> with, um, with what's going on in the market right now and interest rates or whatnot, do you find, you know, you're at 92 doors now. Do you think you'll end up, let's say you get these $30 million in the next couple of days, $30 million of, of, of yeah. notes. Yeah. Do you anticipate burying those by refinancing them, holding them for a lot longer? Or do you anticipate um, selling more? No, the, the issue there is that, uh, yeah, how if there's 200 assets in that pool, you know, maybe five of them will be in Baltimore and Philadelphia. You know what I mean? So a lot of them will just be outside of our, our rental market. You know what I mean? So that, that's where, uh, the, but one thing like to the, to attest to like the, um, or testament to, to like single family rentals and more and more like institutions getting into that space like our capital partner has become more and more interested in keeping stuff as rentals um they're still not fully there yet you know what i mean like but some of them certainly are there are institutions out there that are you know have, have earmarked billions of dollars to go into the single family space and the rental space a lot of that's built to rent communities and a lot of that has to do with you know new you can't beat new construction when it comes to maintenance and repairs and all that kind of stuff and too like a lot of these institutions just they need to spend millions of dollars. You know what I mean? They, they don't want to get into a project if it's under 50 million. It's harder to find. Like they want 50 million plus. You know I mean, whereas, uh, you know, with it's easier to do that in a build to rent community compared to doing it with, you know, scattered sites, single family, that kind of thing. Uh, not that it can't be done, especially with like mom and pop portfolios and, and all that. Um, but at the end of the day, like, yeah, I think, um, you know, a lot of that stuff will just kind of be worked through and, and sold. Uh, but we, are the whole reason we do have the note side of the business and we do that and it's part of our you know kind of overall company uh is because i think there is some synergy and and if, if, if as we grow uh and as we maybe enter new markets the other thing too is like those bids there's other ways of finding note assets that could be more identified to you know Baltimore or, or Philadelphia. Um, so those trades are kind of diversified. You get what you get. They're all over the country. But there's other ways of going about uh, finding note product that could maybe be a little bit more localized. But there's a lot of there's a lot that goes behind that as well. Um, so that's there's definitely synergy. But at the end, the way we look at notes from that perspective is is if it it's kind of this, it's all in the same pipeline. It's leading to either a rental or a disposition, you know, but it's all in the single family world. It's all in the residential, you know, single family space. Does your group ever invest in other operators? No, you know, it's, it's funny. Like that, that's one of those things where, especially me as like a fundraiser, like at, at heart and like foundationally, like that being my thing. Uh, it's one of those things that I've, I always have conversations. People always ask me to raise money for, for different deals. And, um, it's one of those things where I can't raise enough money to buy all the, the single family homes I want to buy right now. So it's just like, I don't really want to be distracted. And two, like I, one of my pet peeves is when I go to like uh, real estate meetings and all, when you talk to that guy who you've seen year over year and he's like doing something different every single time you talk to him, uh, where it's like, dude, if you just pick one thing and you, and you became good at it, you're going to make money, whether it's car washes or self storage or hotels, just pick one thing and, and be good at it. Uh, and I've done like, 
brokerage or around like the Philadelphia area. And I always like, I see these families that own multifamily or they own car washes or they own hotels or whatever it is. And like, that tends to be all they do. And it's like, they own a bunch of self storage facilities and that's all they do. And they know that business really well. Um, not that there isn't like a place for that. And I, and I know some people who kick butt doing like the fund to funds kind of structure, but for us, uh, you know, one of the things that was really important was that we're operators, you know, that we're, we're the, when you invest with us, you know, you're, you're investing with us, you know, and, and we're not lending the money out to anybody else. And, uh, I think like PPRs does that now, like they kind of, they have these different relationships, so like a fund to fund structure. Uh, so it, it could be done and, and, and people do it well and it provides the investor the ability to kind of diversify with one investment over a couple different operators, which I think is cool and, and unique. Um, but I, one thing that brought myself and, and my partner, Ron, and my other partner, Wade, together was we're kind of all control freaks. So we, and that's like, we don't want to outsource anything. Like we want to be able to control the whole process. And if we partner with somebody else, not that we wouldn't do it. It's just, we, we kind of know how we would need to make that structured and all. And we're doing, we got our hands full enough now, like we're just doing what we're doing and trying to grow and, and, you know, grow our portfolio. So it's not something we've done, but um, I was just, just a couple weeks ago, I had uh, breakfast with a couple guys I've known for a long time who are commercial developers. They've done a lot of like industrial and office and, and like um, different things like that. And uh, they had a pretty cool uh, daycare opportunity, which I've I, I liked and we're continuing conversations around that. So I always look for other things like from a diversification standpoint that's, and that's like quite a, the diversification. Yeah, exactly. I mean, but it was one of those things where like they, they could take this like underutilized like office and, and like in line, you know, retail and stuff like that. And it, and it was a very unique structure because daycare is in general, I was never like a huge fan of because you got to get all this like specialty equipment and all this stuff. And you as the land, as the owner take all this like risk up front. And and then you're building as they build their like clientele and all like it, it's just there was like a lot of risk. But this was a little bit different, uh, the structure of it and all. But so I'll look at other stuff and, and I'm always in, in, in investors always ask me like, oh, could you look at this deal or could you look at that deal? And if I have the time, I certainly will. And I, I look at it for selfish reasons because I would like to invest in it from a diversification standpoint. But also too, like what are they providing from a return term uh, transparency perspective? And then is that, is it better than my fund? You know what I mean? Like, is it competitive with my fund? Can I beat that? You know what I mean? So I'm always kind of looking at it for, for multiple different perspectives, you know? Oh, that, that's, that's amazing. I mean, we're always looking at opportunities too, but I think what we've realized is, you know, the more that you can stick within your vertical, um, that it's, it, it, the synergies build on themselves. Now there will be a point where it's, you know, there's buying businesses that are maybe not associated necessarily on the real estate side um, and that maybe don't provide um, essentially verticals. And that's because we have now, you know, multiple, multiple years of building businesses. But I think truly in the beginning, it's like, dude, get your base, be good at that one thing. And then you can start expanding on that, you know, hit, it, hit at least a million dollars a year in revenue, you know, get yourself a baseline where you where you're not just a, you know, a, a solo entrepreneur where you actually have some systems. Uh, you're not doing all your taxes on your own. Um, everything's, you know, not in the notes section on your phone that you've actually created some additional systems. Uh, <laughs> I think it's important to also do it yourself. So like, yes, if you're going to diversify or jump into building a business or whatever, uh, gosh, what's that? Is it Chris Crone? Is it? Chris Crone? Yeah, I don't know. The guy's on, he's on, all of a sudden he's on everybody's social the media The guy that's going to live to 144? <laughs> yeah, that guy. Oh, okay. He's going yeah. yeah. to be worth like billions. Okay. Have you, have you seen him, Peter? Have you seen yeah, him? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't get away from that guy. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In, yeah. In the bed with his wife. And he's, Boy, yeah, he, he wakes up at three and from three to 15, it's meditation is why that guy. Okay. So, um, but look, I mean, he's obviously been successful. One of the things he had said is that he's going to make, he started making his money, his, his easiest money, uh, lowest hanging fruit in real estate. And now he wants, what he wants to do is build equity and businesses by buying businesses. And that's a big thing he's on right now. And I'll get off of, you know, shitting on this guy. Cause I, he's obviously done well, he's done very well for himself. But in that example, uh, as Colin and I have made money, we've taken some risks with our own money to diversify and get out there and try something new. But we're, our business is built the same way as, as yours. We're investing, of course, our own money, 
but uh, millions of dollars of other people's money. And I don't think you're being very fiduciary responsible by taking somebody's money and saying, you know what, I'm going to go start a daycare. Yeah. (laughs) This is chemistry class, you know, like, Hey, hey, do you want, do you want? Yeah. It's, it's even how we started. I mean, we started with our own money and I was like, I'm not taking another person's dime until I've like worked out some kinks on myself. Like, I can lose my own money. It stinks. You know, it's not, it's not the most enjoyable thing, but at least, you know, it's my own money. When sure. you start taking other people's money, and I think this is often, you know, I don't know why people don't, don't fully connect this. You are literally taking a piece of their life, meaning they traded some time to get that money. It's, sure. it's not, it's not like, poof, they're so rich and here you go. They don't care. No, that, that person worked, put in the sweat, tears, sweat and hours to get that money, you need to take that fiduciary responsibility. So yeah, I 100% agree. But yeah, I mean, it is certainly fun. And it's uh, what is it you find out and you f around the more you find out more you f around, <laughs> but I'm going to do it on my own dime at first right. until I get right. some proficiency with it before I'm taking investors capital, which absolutely. in Chris's defense, that's what he's done. Yeah, he's yeah. using his own money. And he's <laughs> yeah. going out there and taking risks. Yeah, yeah, yeah no, absolutely. I, I couldn't agree with you guys more. I mean, I, I even do that now with like marketing stuff. So like, we're, we're trying to raise more capital and, and just you know run more fuel through the rocket ship we built every last couple of years and like when i you look at all these different opportunities on the marketing side and i'm sure you guys know know of all of them you know with facebook ads and the podcast stuff and events and all and it's like i don't i like i will spend my own money before i'll spend fun money to do that stuff because it's like if it doesn't work and i don't see the return on investment i'm okay if i lost my own money but like if that happens in the fund and like we can deploy we could buy a property for $15,000. You know what I mean? So it's just like, I could have bought a property or, you know, like something like that. So it's like, I always look at it as like, yeah, what can I, what can I do like with my own capital and kind of test it out, see if it's going to work before I do anything like that. Cause I I completely agree with you. I think that you have such a fiduciary responsibility to your investors and you wouldn't be able to do what you're doing without them. And, uh, and like you said, it's just such a serious, it's, it's everything. You know what I mean? And, And I know my partner, partner Ron, his father uh, got into something years ago. One of my other partners got into something. So like I, I have these, you know, personal relationships with people who have lost money in different things. And you see the toll that that takes on them, like in like everything in their entire life. Um, and it's just, it, it's devastating. It's just absolutely devastating. And, and it's, it's good to hear you guys say that. Cause I think some people just don't, I don't know what it is. They don't look at it that way or whatever. You hear these stories and the longer I've been in the business, you know, you hear things go South and stuff like that. And like, you know, it, it's, it's, it's devastating and it does have a huge effect on people's lives. And, you know, so that's one of those things, like, especially going back to like being a fundraiser and, and like raising capital, you know, you see people who will raise capital for deals and they don't have like any real relationship or, you know what I mean? Like anything to like the operator and they don't understand the business model or like things like that. And it's just like, that is so like, I've had those calls with people like that from LinkedIn or whatever, you know, where it's like, you know, I'm raising money for this. So, you know, you, know, you have five minutes and it's like, I hop on a call and it's like, so you're not the operator. Like you, you never saw the hotel or you never, it's just like, you never, you didn't go to Belize or whatever crazy place it is or something. It's like, who the heck would give you money? Like it just boggles my mind. But Um, like, so that's always my advice to people who like, who are on the fundraising side of things. It's like, don't get in a partnership unless they are 100% willing to open up everything to you, show you everything, take you to the properties, do all that kind of stuff. Not only like for your peace of mind and knowing that it is what it is and, and they are what it's what they say it is. But like in order to like legally like to have a fund of funds, like you need you can't make money just raising money. Like so you need to be able to say, I did all this due diligence. I did all those kinds of things. So it's like there's a couple different reasons why you, you should do that kind of stuff. Um, but it just boggles my mind sometimes when I hear these stories of like people who give money to people on Facebook or something like that. And it's just like, you know, and there's nothing wrong with that. I know, you know, it's certainly, there's legitimate companies that advertise, you know, on on there and stuff like that. But it's, um, it's just sometimes I don't think people realize how much of a fiduciary responsibility they have and how that just trickles down through that in person's entire life and in every aspect of it. So, yeah. And I also think people are smarter, uh, in the aggregate than we give them credit for. Like I'll give you an example and I can't say the individual's name, but a popular, popular social media influencer that's in the real estate space, but 
not, not an operator by any means, you know, was working on a syndication and fell very, very, very short. And it was for the same reason. It was the wrong type of individual that was doing investor relations, you know, it was maybe a 19 year old kid that thought it was cool that was used to selling, you know, some different, you know, sort sort of coaching platforms couldn't speak upon the sure. deal. And it, it, it's me and Chris have spent $0 on Facebook ads. I don't know how to really set one up. We are <laughs> terrible at it. The but, fact that, that we had this going, we had enough technical difficulties so you can tell how, <laughs> our, our, our prowess on that. That's not always. That's, that's not, not that's not always. Yeah. But, uh, but the point is, it's like we, we, we've proven a product in what we do. So there's a level of comfortability there. It's like, oh, these guys have gone full cycle 55 times on a property. 56. 56. Yeah, there we go. Sign, sign in the docs. Today, today is 57. Yeah. Today's 57. Today's 57. Today's nice. 57. So, um, so there's something to be said about, you know, just rolling up your sleeves, get the experience and, you know, um, that, that can then become the sales, you know? So I, I just, I just well, think that those things are uh, My experience has been, it, well, and I, and I could be wrong, but sometimes I feel like some, the, the people who are really good at the marketing side of things probably aren't really good at the operation side of oh, things. That's now, that so could true. be completely wrong. You know I mean, I'm sure there's people that can wear both of those hats, but it's like, sometimes there's people who are just really like charismatic or whatever the word is. You know and I mean, like where they can just go in and light up a room. It's like, like, are they good at the operation side? Are they good at like the analytical side? Like, it's most really people hard to wear all the hats. It is. Most people should not do both simultaneously. Now, there have been many people who obviously ha have been so successful as an operator that they can now transform themselves into the marketer for their business and say, look what I've done. But it's really difficult to be the full-time marketer and the full-time operator. And ultimately, I think you're right. I mean, we have a guy on our team, Jason, who's phenomenal at raising money. Now, Colin and I have raised money since we started, but we, we actually kind of siloed that into a, a guy who was already extremely good with people and he does a lot of money raising. But what's one of the things he does? The icing on the cake or the, the, the bow at the end, the investor meets us, the operators, and they get a chance to actually speak. Now, Jason's trustworthy. He knows a lot about the business, but the most important thing is they get a chance to speak to the people who are actually taking care of their money. And I think a lot of times, unfortunately, certainly in the last five years, you have these people who are like, I know how to, to run Instagram and I can kind of bullshit somebody on the phone and all of a sudden they're taking your harder money and it's yeah, scary. And, and the market was just an, an incredible rising. Everybody was fast. hitting home runs. But yeah, I mean, I remember seeing some deals and it was, it was frightening on how like, you know, you get somebody with some sort of online famous prowess of just like, okay, I'm going to raise the capital and people giving them millions of dollars and not a clue how to run a project. Oh, and I won't name anybody. There are some coaching platforms out there. They, they, they offer very little guidance. Um, I remember speaking to some people recently who paid for these coaching platforms and these coaches was astounding, knew absolutely nothing and, and almost had them be the lead sponsor and sign on SEC documents to take down large apartment complexes. It's very frustrating. That were space. horrific deals. Yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty scary. After they spent $20,000 to be part of that. Yeah. It's uh, so anybody out there, you know, do your, do your due diligence and uh, really understand the people that roll up their sleeves. Now, everybody on the team is not going to be the guy that rolls up their sleeves, but there has to be somebody and there, ha and you got to be careful of who you're taking advice from. I, uh, I just had this conversation this morning uh, about with, with coaches even. There are so many people in the coaching space now who they've hardly done anything. I mean, they no, they, that's not true. They have an ebook. They, they, have, yes. they have a podcast. <laughs> They're an author, and yes. uh, yeah, or they yeah. have one duplex. And by the way, having one duplex is more than the majority of America. So you've certainly done something, but the balls to then charge ten thousand dollars coaching because you know how to <laughs> rehab a duplex. Scary stuff. Yeah, that's gangster. All right, guys, we're approaching the end, except for our final section. The final three with CNC. These are the final three questions. Random every week with Chris and Colin. Chris, I'll let you go first, buddy. I don't want to steal yours, but it's... Uh, well, one that we ask all the time, but I think it's important because, you know, to hear you were in college doing this and all of a sudden you just got right into it and you can tell you've worn different hats, which by the way, makes you a better person for the, on the investment side, because you can speak to some different areas because you've done it before. Um, I can speak to people about single families cause I've done it before, you know? So I think that helps. Um, what are some, what are some daily routines you put yourself through to kind of get yourself in the right mindset? You know, is that, 
are you waking up at three and running marathons? Are you, are you meditating for an hour? And I don't mean to be too bro science about this, but anybody in a successful position like yourself has, they have something they go to to get their mind right each day. It could be in the morning, it could be at night. What are your daily routines that make you successful? Sure. Well, and it's funny. That, that's my partner, Ron. He, he's a CrossFit guy. He's up at like four thirty, five o'clock. He, he's at the gym before I even got up in the morning. I like Ron. Uh, I like Ron. <laughs> yeah. So, um, no, for, for me, I, you know, I, I, I'm Catholic, you know, that, that's a, that's a big part of my life. And I mean, being a Christian and, uh, I, I have the cross behind me in, in this shot. And, uh, so that's kind of my, my fallback. And I mean, that, that's my foundation. You know, I try to find myself in prayer, uh, in the morning and, and before I go to bed at night and just throughout the day. And I mean, I try to remind myself to have a, a conversation with God and not just like recite prayer or, uh, or just kind of go about the day and completely forget about it. You know what I mean? So like that is a, a daily occurrence to me. And I mean, I usually, I wear like a miraculous medal and stuff like that. I actually don't have it on right now, but I usually do. Um, so that's kind of like just something that's there with me to kind of ground me all throughout the day. Uh, I'll usually, there's like different masses around here. Like I'll go to at noon or I'll go to at like eight o'clock in the morning or like before work or during work, um, just to kind of, just to take that break, you know what I mean? Like and reset and remind myself, you know, what's important to me and, and why I do what I do and all that kind of stuff. Um, so I would say that's like a daily habit that really, and I, I see a difference. You know what I mean? Like in those times where, you know, you're just busy and, and you're just going throughout your day and, and you never have, you don't take that time and do that stuff. Like, I, and then when you do, I definitely notice just a massive difference. And, um, you know, then I have, I have a dog too. I got a beagle. So like she, she keeps me, uh, on my toes and, and, you know, just, I can't believe she hasn't broken. You, I swear to God, every podcast I do, she usually comes in and she's standing right here. She wants the pets. Um, so she's another one, you know, and just kind of clear your head. And, you know, I love taking her out for a walk. Like that's like a daily meditation. You know what I mean? Getting her out and, uh, she loves it, loves sniffing. And, you know, I kind of look to her too. Cause like she, she with food, and with like anything, like she has no shame. Like, like I just, so I try to take a, like a, I should write a book called like Beagle Sales or something like that. Cause like she is so persistent. She's so sweet about it. And, and she guilts me into it. You know what I mean? Like, but like, is that works? You know what I mean? Cause that's another thing I would add like business wise. I, I try to just always be on the phone every day. I feel like when you're raising money and you're trying to make deals happen, whether it's like, it could be any, like, you could be on the phone with anybody. It just seems like when you're on the phone and you're talking and you're making things, it's just like the world's like working for you in that sense. Um, so that's another part of it. But like, yeah, she just has this way. She's just like so pleasantly aggressive. Uh, like I, I try to take that into my like sales and like, yeah, I just pleasantly wear aggressive. I like that. It's, it's really something. And, and she gets what she wants. I'm telling you, it works for her. You know? <laughs> so I try to, I try to think about what would Becky do at, at this time? Cause she just has that way of looking at you and she knows what she wants and gets what she wants. So, uh, it's just, it's funny, but, um, but yeah, like from a business perspective, I would just say like, always be on the phone, uh, every day, just try to call somebody and, and talk to them. And it's just, when you're always on the phone, it just seems to work out in some way, shape or form. Uh, the other thing too, is like just picking up the phone. You know what I mean? Like that is a daily habit for me. Like I will, um, like if I'm available, I'm picking the phone up. You know what I mean? Like, and if an email comes through, I'm answering it right away. If a text comes through, if I can answer it right away, I'm answering it right away. Like I don't let things like that sit. And I think a lot of people, either they're a lot busier than I am uh, or, or what, but they just seem to be bad about that. And I think that is such a huge differentiator now uh, if you do that stuff, because so many people don't do it. So, and I hear that people, I know they respect it. People tell me that all the time. So it's awesome. That's a, that's Chris right there. Um, <laughs> I, I don't know what part of what you said is me, but no. Uh, so I used to, I used to have beagles too. I had a pocket beagle named Bugle, oh, yeah. and then yeah. uh, Gracie. She was a sweetheart. Yeah, her ashes are up on the rest fireplace. in peace, Gracie. Rest oh, in peace, Gracie. Yeah, no, love my girl. Um, I haven't asked this in a while, but just curious what uh what what what's one of your favorite books and or educational sources, podcast, etc. Can't the, use the Bible. <laughs> the um what, what do i feel you probably heard this before you know what i mean but from like a sales and and like you know in, in uh, investor relations perspective and win friends and influence people is one of those books that i always go back to uh it just it, it just puts things into perspective it's a good foundation and um i, I think 
nowadays more than ever when everybody wants to do everything over text messages and email and you know the younger generations like can't look people in the eye and have a conversation like if you can do that kind of stuff like i i just said this i mean you're just gonna you're gonna set yourself apart from the rest of the crowd so that's something you know i always go back to that book and then um you know re-educational resource or something like that um would this be a good time to plug my podcast or uh absolutely absolutely (laughs) i don't i don't listen to like a ton of podcasts i mean it's funny because like I, when, I don't know, maybe you guys feel this way too. I don't know. But like when you're in real estate all day, every day, it's like you, at the end of the night, sometimes you just want to like clear your mind or like, so I'll listen to like, um, I, I think we have like a Roku box in my kitchen and, uh, I'll put like unsolved mysteries on or something oh, like that. Wow. I'll, just, I'll get lost. From the like, past. I, I love, I love Robert Stack and the unsolved mystery. I love how that show has like, it, they'll be killing somebody one second and then they're like finding some long lost, lost love. love. Yeah, it's it's such an awesome balance of like just crazy and kind of sad stories and really that that show single handedly disallowed me to sleep for like seven years of my (laughs) childhood life. I was so scared of ghosts every time I saw it on that show. That's hilarious. It's I just love the balance in in that show. Just like in one episode, yeah, ghosts, murders, uh, you know, some Vietnam lost love or World War II lost love. It's just like so. I'll you're uh, an old soul, my friend. Yeah, I've heard that before, but um, I don't know what it is. I just uh, yeah, so, yeah. So what's your podcast? What's the name of your podcast? Uh, it's a real estate investing on point. Uh, so we're actually we're dog people. Like our we named uh, GSP REI was based off of German short hair pointers. So I don't know if you guys know that that breed. It's a uh, it's a pointer dog. They're a hunting dog. So my partner Ron's got two. My other partner Wade has one. Um, I do not have the energy or the time of day for them. They are like absolutely absolutely insane, aggressive, athletic, crazy dogs. I went with the Beagle, also a hunting dog. Like she'll, she'll go anywhere with you. She'll walk for 10 miles, but she will take a nap on a sofa. Like no one's business. It's just okay. like, I love the balance just of like chill. Chris. So like, yeah, yeah, right. yeah, right. the, the balance of like chill to just like being crazy is, is awesome. So um, yeah, but GSP was named after German short hair pointers. So we're dog people. Uh, and then, and like on point is like a hunting kind of term. So, you know, and, and too, like there's when people say like on point, it's, you know, you're, you're doing, you're doing something the right way. You know what I mean? Like you're, you're on top of your game. That kind of thing. So it's uh, real estate investing on point and uh, just it's my it's like a round table kind of discussion. It's my partners and, and myself just talking about the markets and, you know, kind of conversational stuff, just like what we're doing. It's cool. great. Well, thanks for having uh, yeah. thanks for coming on, man. Yeah, this appreciate you. Yeah, definitely. Thanks for having me. Great conversations. And uh, I'd love to stay in touch with you guys. You're doing some awesome stuff. Yeah, definitely. How can people get a hold of you? Uh, so gsprei.com is a great way to get in touch. Uh, my phone number's on there. They can schedule time on there. Uh, email address is there. So I would say start there, uh, get a ton of information on myself and they can listen to the podcast and see our fund offerings, all that kind of stuff. So gsprei.com, I would start there. Awesome. Thanks, Peter. Peter cool. Man, great Hi, meeting Colin, you. Chris, yeah. very nice to meet you guys and great conversation. You the same, sir. Thank you very much. Have a good right, one. brother. Hey, thank you, man. Thank you so much. And uh, apologize for the difficulties. But, uh, thanks for <laughs> no worries at all. No worries cool. at all. It was a fun all right. time. All right, brother. What we'll, we'll fun I've out. had on a podcast. I'll give it to you guys. Cool. Heck yeah. I love it. Love it, man. All right, brother. Appreciate thanks, you. Appreciate it. Right, thank you.